Hello and welcome to World Canvas. We're excited to be here in the University of Iowa's main library gallery for our program on Dostoevsky. World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa, and we thank you for joining us, whether in person or virtually. We find ourselves in the midst of a beautiful and telling exhibition called From Revolutionary Outcast to Man of God. The exhibition was curated and created by the guests we'll be speaking with in just a moment. And a bit later in the show, we'll learn how composers and filmmakers have adapted Dostoevsky's novels and stories into operatic and cinematic formats, and we'll get an inside look at the challenges of performing Dostoevsky before live theater audiences. Tonight, we're going to explore the life, writings, and legacy of a giant in world literature, Fyodor Dostoevsky. 200 years after his birth and 140 years after his death, Dostoevsky's novels, short stories, and essays continue to captivate readers, scholars, and artists around the world. Why does Dostoevsky's writing, with so much of it reflective of a very particular historical moment in Russian history, far from our own time, still speak to us? One of the people who's going to help us answer these questions is Anna Barker, a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Iowa. Anna is at the far end of the panel here. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Joining Anna are Eric Ensley, curator of rare books and maps at the University of Iowa Library Special Collections and Archives. And Eric, thank you. Hello. Mm -hmm. And next to him is Bill Voss, conservator technician at the University of Iowa Library's Conservation and Collections Care Unit. Good evening. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Uh, so, Anna, you're going to be our guide through Dostoevsky tonight. And to give us a common starting point, could you paint a picture briefly of the world into which Dostoevsky um, entered and tell us about him as a man? Well, this is a very cozy room, and we're staying here for two, three months uh, because that's how long it will take to um, explain um, the significance of him, not just in uh, the, Russian, the world of Russian literature and culture, but um, internationally. Um, he's 200, and I thought a couple of years ago that um, we'll have a nice little birthday party for him. I never imagined it will be this beautiful. As one of my students pointed out, this is as close to standing in your brain, Anna, as we'll ever get. So I'm <laughs> eternally grateful to the library for um, allowing the spectacle to happen, and it truly is magnificent. Um, why Dostoevsky? Um, he's sort of everything. And I have um, several students um, and, and readers here who are following me on 100 Days of Brothers Karamazov on Facebook. We're taking this novel one chapter at a time, and I really feel that that is not enough. Um, every, every line, every, every word means something tremendous in Dostoevsky. Um, I suppose to, to just explain where he comes from, um, several interesting events in his life um, should, be, uh, should be mentioned. Um, he's a young man who was born into a very good family. Uh, father's a doctor, mother from merchant class. Um, in 1821 in Russia, born in Moscow, uh, moved to St. Petersburg to attend um, uh, military engineering school, which happens to be housed in the Mihailovsky Castle, and that is the building where Emperor Paul I was murdered. So um, interesting historical pedigree um, for the building. Um, joins a um, socialist reading group. Um, happens to be the wrong year. It's 1848, 1849. Um, Europe is going boom um, during this time period. There are revolutions in Paris, um, Warsaw, an uprising in Budapest, um, uprising in Vienna. And um, Nicholas I feels that an uprising in Russia is not a good idea for a nation that at this point 
um, includes uh, Finland, Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and Alaska. It's an enormous country. Um, he has all of these young men arrested and uh, put in the Peter and Paul Fortress for eight months. And at the end of that eight months um, stay in a really lovely historical building, <laughs> yet another beautiful historical building in St. Petersburg with a, with a treacherous history, um, their sentence is given to them, and it's death by the firing squad. And it is absolutely stunning. Dostoevsky is 28 years old, and he's sentenced to death. Um, the execution is supposed to happen in, the, um, in one of the squares, um, Simonovsky Plots in St. Petersburg. The young men are marched out there. Uh, the firing squad is lined up, and the shot doesn't happen. Um, Nicholas I had a flair for the dramatic. He was going to um, commute their sentence to life in Siberia, but he wanted the, um, the horror of it to sink in. Dostoevsky will describe this experience in his novel, The Idiot. Um, at the very beginning of the novel, Prince Mushkin arrives to St. Petersburg, goes to the Yupanchin family, talks to one of the servants, and um, describes the experience of a human being who knows who he's about to die. Um, and of course, after that come four years of hard labor in Siberia, pounding alabaster and baking bricks and um, staying in a barrack with uh, people who committed multiple murders. Um, Dostoevsky um, is not accepted by these murderers because he is a member of the intelligentsia. They associate him with the ruling class. He's a political prisoner, but most of the people in his barracks are common, common folk who committed uh, atrocious, heinous crimes. Um, and Dostoevsky resents the fact that they resent him. And then the miracle happens. And he re literally describes it as this miraculous moment in his life. And he describes it in his writer's diary that is on display um, in one of the cases. He woke up one day and looked at all of the unfortunates that were um, imprisoned with him. And he said to himself, I cannot judge them. I am one of them. They are human and I am human. And I cannot pass my human judgment on them because I cannot be above them. And that is the beginning of Dostoevsky, the writer that we see in his um, works that are called prophetic by critics. And it's Crime and Punishment, The Idiot Demons, The Adolescent and Brothers Karamazov. Um, he really has the sense that human beings are capable of absolutely everything. And he understands the profound darkness of the human heart. Um, those of you who um, have the guts to read and finish Notes from the Dead House, it, it is the harshest novel ever written. Dostoevsky describes everything that happens to human beings during this hard labor service. But at the same time, there is light there. There is joy there. He, he, he describes uh, convicts' faces when they're experiencing true and profound happiness. And these are people whose faces are branded because they've committed so many crimes. Um, and Dostoevsky just reaches for the light. He knows, he knows how dark the darkness is, and yet he knows that the light is there, and the light is there for everyone at all times, everywhere. And that's why his message today is so incredibly gratifying. We, we are looking for the light. And, um, and he drags us through the muck, every single novel. Oh my goodness. The chapter that I had to comment on for today, um, those of you who are following on 100 Days of Brothers Karamazov, no thank you. I did not want to read that chapter on my birthday. How dare you, Dostoevsky? <laughs> it's about a, 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 a murderer who confesses to his murder at his birthday party. So I, I promise not to do that today. <laughs> but, um, but then we know that there's light. Every single novel has this incredible, beautiful light because he believes in us. And, uh, you know, I say if Dostoevsky believes in us, we're in good shape. <laughs> mm -hmm.
Well, so I mentioned, and everyone here knows, that the, these novels were, and stories were written a very, very long time ago, placed in a Russia that most of us have no familiarity with at all. What is it that remains universal in these stories? People are horrible, and people are good, and well, we are both. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite characters in Brothers Karamazov is Grushenka, and um, we haven't seen much of her yet. We're what, on day 42 right now. Uh, but she's coming, and Grushenka is a formidable character. Dostoevsky female characters are an event in everyone's life uh, because they are always agents of free will. They are not defined through their relationship to a man, ever. Not even, not even in the early works like um, Poor Folk and The Double and White Knights. His women characters are hell fiends when need be, and if they feel like the world must burn down because they're doing it out of spite, well, so be it. Um, Dostoevsky gives his female characters full agency, and Grushenka at one point, um, yeah, there's a party, and there's a military, Russian military officer involved, and Russian imperial officers knew how to party. Um, those of you who read War and Peace was me, boy. Um, so there's a military officer involved, and, and Grushenka is intoxicated severely at this point, and even the military officer feels, ooh, this party is getting a little too wild, and he wants to stop the party, and Grusha says, no, let them. They are joyous right now. People are having fun. The world is a good place. We are bad, but the world is a good place. And then she adds, we are both good and bad, good and bad. And it's fascinating, one of the characters in Brothers Karamazov is based on an elder at the Optina Monastery. And um, it's um, the character in Brothers Karamazov is fa Father Zasima. And um, several of the readers have been posting quotes by this elder from the Optina Monastery, the real life elder who, um, who um, was a, as a model for Zasima. And actually, the, these are some of his words. We are both good and bad, good and bad. We are, we are uh, a mixed bad. Uh, we do some absolutely terrifying things, and, um, and then there's a glimmer of hope in all of us. And um, that remains universal. I mean, um, we've been that way at the age of Gilgamesh. I mean, Gilgamesh is a terrible character, but there's goodness in him, too. Um, it's the message of St. Augustine and his confessions. Um, Dante knows a, a thing or two <laughs> about being bad and good at the same time. Um, Milton in his Paradise Lost and um, Goethe in his Faust. I would say that that is a nice little grab bag of authors who um, figured a thing or two um, out about what it means to be human. And I appreciate the writing of all of these, um, all of mm -hmm. these giants. Well, um, just to, to go back a little bit to his biography, he was not an immediate over, overnight success, right? And then when he did have success, he lost all of his money, was constantly trying to find someone who would fund the next project or the next hotel room. It's wild. It's completely wild. Uh, his first, first book is a translation, so um, shout out to everyone who translates in Iowa City. We have a fabulous translation workshop here in town. Uh, my degree is in uh, translation studies, so um, I understand what he was attempting to do, but it didn't sell well. And so he wanted to fund his um, outlandish lifestyle as a 23, 24, 25-year-old young man in St. Petersburg. So he thought, okay, I'll, I'll just write something for money. He did. It was a success. His first publication was hailed by the editor of the Contemporary as the next best thing in Russian literature. That goes to his head. He resi resigns his uh, military commission because he feels that he's a great author after his first publication. Happens, happens to 23-year-olds. <laughs> and then his second publication, The Double, is a catastrophe. Um, and he becomes bitter. He, that, that rejection um, hurt him. It's fascinating that um, the young um, 
student, Sylvia Plath, eventually will write her honors thesis on Dostoevsky's double and the doubling in Brothers Karamazov. So that book has a fantastic literary pedigree. Um, both Oscar Wilde and Robert Louis Stevenson will be inspired by that book. Um, and then comes Siberia, and then when he, when he gets um, out of Siberia and he's allowed to go back to um, St. Petersburg and Moscow, um, he has no money, he's now married, um, he has a stepson with his, uh, with his first wife, um, and his brother Mikhail, bless him, goes into debt and opens two literary magazines, Epoch and Time, to publish his younger brother's literary works. Um, then 1864 happens, wife dies, he's responsible for the stepson, brother dies, um, he's responsible for his brother's debts, and he takes on the responsibility for his brother's wife and children. And at this point, there is no way out but to gamble. And so Dostoevsky starts a 10-year, absolutely catastrophic gambling career. Well, but of course, he will turn that into a spectacular novel called <laughs> The Gambler. Um, it's fascinating that he meets his second wife. So meeting of Anna Grigorievna Dostoevsky, to whom Brothers Karamazov is dedicated, is associated with this novel, The Gambler. Uh, Dostoevsky is publishing Crime and Punishment in serialized form in a Russian magazine called um, Russian Messenger. Uh, the editor, Karkov, was a genius. He serialized everything from Anna Karenina and War and Peace to Crime and Punishment, Idiot, Demons, and Brothers Karamazov, all in one magazine in the course of 20 years. Um, he needs money to finish Crime and Punishment. He goes to a publisher. The publisher's name is Stilovsky. He says to Stilovsky, I need money. Stilovsky says, sign on the dotted line. But you have to give me a full-length novel by November 1. Uh, or else, <laughs> I own everything that you're going to write for the next nine years. Why nine years? Stilovsky has an ego. He says, you belong to the state for nine years. Now your brain will belong to me for nine years. Dostoevsky um, signs the contract. It's October 1st. Not a line of the novel is written. His friends are panicking. They hire a stenographer. A young woman shows up. He's in his 40s. She's 18. Her name is Anna Grigorievna Snitkina. Just finished stenography courses. They, his, uh, uh, her, her memoirs open on October 4, 1866 in the display case. That's the, the day they meet. 26 days later, they have a novel. There's a fabulous Russian uh, film based on this relationship called 26 Days in the Life of Dostoevsky. Um, Dostoevsky rushes to Stilovsky on October um, 31. It's Halloween, right? <laughs> Stilovsky is, of course, not at home. He is not an idiot. He doesn't want Dostoevsky to win. Dostoevsky is not an idiot either. He rushes to a police station, gets a signed, dated receipt from the police chief. It's an official document, can't be argued in court. Dostoevsky wins. <laughs> Anna Grigorievna comes back a few days later to collect her pay. Dostoevsky says, profoundly grateful to you, couldn't have done it without you, I'm writing a new novel. It's about an artist, he's old, he's sick, he's miserable, he's unsuccessful, he's in love with a younger woman. Is such a plot development possible? And she told him that she loves him and she will love him all her life. And that is the beginning of the um, happiest and um, most profound years of, of his life. Um, they are going to be married for um, 16 years. Um, she's going to follow him to Europe because his gambling debts are so severe, he's on the verge of debtor's prison. Um, five of the first years of marriage sp are spent on gambling. He gambles away her wedding ring. Um, their first baby dies at the age of three months old in Geneva. He mourns her as he's writing The Idiot. And then, 1871, the gambling stops, just completely stops. Um, she renegotiates all of his debts. They can return back to Russia. She renegotiates with all of his publishers, creditors, family members. And then by the time he is writing Brothers Karamazov, he's at peace in his soul with himself. 
catastrophe catches up with him again. His three-year-old son, Alosha, dies at that point. That's why Alosha Karamazov is such an inspired character. He is very much, though, um, based on Dostoevsky's feelings trying to deal with this. Um, but Dostoevsky just shines, shines all the way. And it's amazing because the last four novels, Idiot, Demons, The Adolescent, and Brothers Karamazov, were dictated to his wife, Anna, every single one. So those of you who read the novels and know how explosively dramatic they are, can you imagine being Anna Grigorievna Snitkina and every day you go into your husband's study and he acts out the next segment of the novel in front of you? Just uh, that's why the dialogue is so explosive. And she, then she would note it down in, um, uh, in shorthand. She would go into her study, um, turn it into the first draft, give it to Dostoevsky. Every night he would go over the first draft and then write an outline of what will be happening between him and his wife the next day. Mm -hmm. And that is the glory of Dostoevsky um, and Anna Grigorievna, who was a genius. She was the first woman publisher in Russia. Tolstoy's wife, Sonia, um, asked advice of Anna Grigorievna on um, how to make money of your husband's writing <laughs> to make sure that your children don't starve. Mm -hmm. So every single novel that you see in, in, um, around you right now has been published because Dostoevsky needed money. Mm -hmm. They were not, not written so that we would be impressed with him. It was written because, one, something hurt inside, and two, bills had to be paid. So mm -hmm. he's, he's amazing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you for that, Anna. And you've mentioned the books that are on display here. It's time to come to you, Eric. Um, I know that you worked with Anna to find the appropriate pieces that are held here at University of Iowa Special Collections. Tell us about this process. Uh, sure. So first off, I have to say that Anna did the vast majority of the picking of the items that are on the exhibit out here today. Um, but so most of the items out here came from the Special Collections Library, which is up on the third floor of the main library here. We have uh, between three and 400,000 items in our collection. Uh, it's absolutely massive. But what's interesting is I don't think in recent memory we have done an uh, exhibit on anything Russian. It's not a particular strength of our collection, but I think what is really amazing is that Anna managed to really dig in and find some amazing items uh, that we did have. And that's part of the process of rediscovery for librarians, um, refinding the objects that are out here and bringing them to light again, which Anna has done a wonderful job of. Um, something I just want to draw attention to with this, uh, some of the early books that are out here is that printing is something that came late to Russia. Uh, so the first printing press in Western Europe came in the 1450s. First one in Russia didn't arrive to 1550, and then it wasn't popularized until 1650. And I think what's really fascinating um, about some of the objects out here is that you can see the sort of binaries that exist in Russian society in the 19th century for Dostoevsky at play in the books as well. So in order to found a society based on the sort of bureaucracy and government, Tsar Peter the Great uh, created a new type of font uh, <laughs> to kind of make things clearer, make things more legible. And this is in opposition to a sort of more older font that is more uh, religious, looks more like a medieval manuscript. And one of the objects that Anna picked is a Psalter that's on display here. A Psalter is a copy of the Psalms. And it's a great choice because it shows this kind of manuscript font. It's something that we could see a believer, uh, somebody who uh, was really devout, uh, imagine them reading this. And it's in opposition to this sort of civic font, this very legible font. It's something that's hard to read. It's something that harkens back to earlier days. And if you really want to see the sort of uh, binaries at play in Russian society, you can, that's a really, really wonderful piece to have uh, picked. 
And you know, just next to it, you can see the sort of more legible types. Um, but I think what Anna has done a really nice job of is uh, digging in and finding objects that maybe we wouldn't have brought out otherwise. May I just add something? So this room really invited a Dostoevsky exhibition because the two long vitrines are divided into five sections. So Dostoevsky's last five novels, The Prophetic Five, it was a natural choice. This room had a vitrine with five sections. So that uh, side of the exhibition, the prophet side, was easy to put together. So what do you juxtapose to crime and punishment, idiot, demons, adolescents, and brothers Karamazov, the heaviest tomes in world literature? And how do you juxtapose that with his early life? And Eric was an invaluable in this. <laughs> we have two phenomenal books on display in case one, Beginnings, and they are both travel guides for Russia, one published in London in 1815, I believe, and one published in Paris in 1854. And it was phenomenal to have those because Eric felt that we need to just show Russia, show the inception of this author. So we have the 1815 volume opened on the Moscow page, um, and it's a depiction of the Kremlin to um, just show that he was born in Moscow. And then we have the French travel guide from 1854 opened on the Bronze Horseman stage, the, st the page, the, the statue of Peter the Great to indicate that he became a St. Petersburg writer. And that juxtaposition is all Eric. I really, really appreciate that <laughs> because um, that, that side of the exhibition gave us nightmares because we had to pad it severely because you can't really put um, uh, uh, poor folk, uh, the double, and uh, white knights on the same scale as the great five. Mm -hmm. But the balance happened, and the balance happened because of very, very cleverly chosen books to display on the other side of the exhibit. <laughs> I'll just add to that, too, that one of the things that comes out again and again is that Dostoevsky used the city of St. Petersburg as a character in so many of his books. Uh, imagine this is a city that had only been founded 150 years previous uh, by pylons being driven by serfs into the, into the swamp. Uh, this is not a place that's natural for human habitation. And uh, Dostoevsky famously said in The Adolescent, uh, imagine if the fog lifts off the city one day and it is nothing but a finished swamp and a sad horseman sitting there uh, on an exhausted horse, which I think is one of the most wonderful images. No, absolutely, absolutely. And um, I'm just going to list all the books that are set in St. Petersburg. Poor Folk, Double, White Knights, Humiliated and Insulted, Notes from Underground, Crime and Punishment, Idiot, and Adolescence. So he really did an homage to the city. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Eric. I'd, I'd like to bring Bill Voss in, too, because you, uh, as a conservator technician, you look at these books, these various works, these really rare and incredible pieces that special collections may hold, and you see what kinds of um, help they may need, uh, new binding, whatever. Uh, yeah, that's one of, the <coughs> one of the responsibilities I have as a, as a conservator technician slash exhibit preparator. I'm responsible for creating all of the mounts hmm. and for working with Anna to make sure that everything's going to fit, that everything can be displayed the way that we would like like it to be seen, and that everything's safely displayed and mm -hmm. is going to be damaged in the process. And once you've done that, you've also have to look for items that require some some work or some treatment. We had a number of these in this exhibit. We're actually a little more treatment heavy in this exhibit than we are in most, so I had a little extra work to do. But uh, if you're interested in the conservation treatments, probably the most extensive ones were sketches of Russia over there. Uh, we're displaying a plate with an engraving of Moscow, is it? And that book has a series of about 14 plates or so in the front of the book that are all printed on heavy paper. 
and uh, the rest of the book is sewn signatures. And the plates were just sort of glued in, and so over time, they start to pop out, and so somebody comes along and says, well, we have to get these back in, and so you end up with a folk repair where somebody's taken sewing thread and a needle and just basically whip-stitched them together in chunks and then glued them back in, which probably worked for a while, but eventually the stress on the binding caused the whole thing to pop apart, and so all these plates were just coming out, sewed together in sections, and the sewn sections were coming apart, and the binding in the back, the spine was coming apart, so that really had, yeah. had to be disbound. I had to actually disbind the front half of the book, put the plates in the correct order, because they had been stuck in the wrong order, and then <clears throat> guard them together with uh, strips of Japanese tissue to make them into sections so that they could be sewn. And so now they won't be going anywhere. They're sewn into the book. <laughs> and then uh, just re-back the back so that it was uh, intact. And when I first met Bill, I had this wild idea that I wanted to have floating books in every case. So I wanted to display the beautiful um, things that belong to the University of Iowa Special Collections, but you can't check them out. You can only come to the third floor and admire these books. And I wanted, I insisted that in every single case we will have a copy of the same book that is in print today so that audience members will leave this exhibition thinking, oh, I can just read this. And so for that, I asked Bill to create these little floating things that would hold the books. And every single, um, and Bill obliged, thank you, I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I need to give a shout out to Kalmia Strong, who is the designer of the exhibition, so she created all of the panels. So uh, what, what um, Bill and I and um, um, Sarah Pinkham, um, the gallery coordinator, gave her were the books, the text, the images, and then Call Me a Strong put everything together, which is, I don't know how she did it, it's, it's remarkable. But um, thank you, Bill, for uh, cradling all of these books that I insisted have to be present in every case. Mm -hmm. Well, and just before we leave, I'd just like to ask you, Eric, you told me that you've only been here 10 months with special collections, so you are really discovering an entirely new collection. That's absolutely true. I've only been here for 10 months as curator, uh, but one of the really exciting things for me was getting to see this exhibition kind of coalesce. Um, Russian literature has been something that I've always been fond of. I actually lived in Russia for two years mm. um, learning Russian, and it's been a real joy to come and see this kind of come together right as I arrive. It kind of feels like a welcome home in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's been a great way to learn the collection and a great way to see things that hadn't been seen in a while from this mm -hmm. collection. Yeah. Uh, so, Anna, with your courses, um, do you sometimes bring your students over to the third floor so that they can look at some of these materials? Well, I, I go way back with special collections because, as you may recall, when War and Peace was 150, uh, we juxtaposed um, Tolstoy's vision of horrors of the Napoleonic Wars with Goya's Disasters of War, and I was a co-curator of that exhibition, which was displayed in special collections. Um, so that was super fun. Yes, I do bring students to the library, and as a matter of fact, I'm teaching a course on Russian literature inside the space, and it was tremendous. We read Pushkin's Eugene Onegin, Lermontov's Hero of Our Time, um, Chekhov's Three Sisters, um, Tolstoy's The Cossacks, Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, and we are finally just concentrating on three Dostoevsky's works, Notes from Underground, The Idiot, and Brothers Karamazov. Yes, these kids read 3,000 pages this semester. They don't mind one bit. 
but we are sitting inside the space. So every time I am teaching not a Dostoevsky book, I point at the various sections of the exhibition and I tell them, oh, and by the way, this is how it connects to this work and this is how it connects to this work. And so the students are getting so much additional information um, for their understanding of books that are not even Dostoevsky's works. <laughs> um, because as I always tell them, in Russian culture, everything is connected. <laughs> well, and this, this is one of the renowned special collections. I know one of the renowned libraries in a university in the country. And um, it's a real treat to have Bill Foss, Eric Ensley here, and Anna, you'll be with us for the next segment as well. But I hope you'll thank uh, our two guests uh, with a little applause. Thank you so much. Welcome back to World Canvas and our topic, Dostoevsky, From Revolutionary Outcast to Man of God. I'm Joan Kerr, and World Canvas is a production of UI International Programs. Uh, we're coming to you tonight from the UI Main Library Gallery, which is currently housing a spectacular exhibit on Dostoevsky. Anna Barker, a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Iowa, is with us once again. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we learned in the first part of the program, Anna curated this exhibit and has spearheaded a great many associated Dostoevsky events that will be happening this month here in Iowa City. And also to help us explore uh, the topics we want to reach uh, in this segment, opera and film adaptations, we have Nathan Platt, Associate Professor in the University of Iowa School of Music. Thanks for being here, Nathan. Happy to be here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Ben Delgado, the Programming Director of Film Scene in Iowa City. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Anna, uh, Dostoevsky's been called one of the greatest psychological novelists, creating characters with intense internal conflicts about right and wrong, crime and punishment, characters who wrestle with the existence of God, who attack the notion that social movements can improve the world and the lives of average people. Um, how do you interpret Dostoevsky's impact, both during his own time and during ours? Well, um, once again, do we have two to three months. Um, so you have to understand that this man was under police surveillance till he was 55 years old. He comes back from Siberia at 38, and he is under police surveillance as a potentially dangerous political criminal um, till he's 55 years old. Um, at that point, what is also remarkable, like the switch in Dostoevsky, right? So um, Alexander, so Nicholas I is the czar when he's exiled to Siberia. Alexander II, his son, pardons Dostoevsky, along with all the other members of the Petrushevsky circle and all the members of the Decembrists who um, have been in Siberia s after the Decembrist uprising of 1825. Um, Dostoevsky at that point um, reinvents himself is a secular way of putting it. Um, the resurrection of Dostoevsky happens is a better way of putting it. The story of Lazarus is extremely important to Dostoevsky. Um, you have to understand that um, he received a copy of the New Testament from a Decembrist wife when he was headed to Siberia. There was money sewn into the covers. These women were saints. Um, that book will stay with him for the rest of his life. It will be the last book from which he will be reading on his deathbed. And a physical description of this book will appear in several of his novels, including Crime and Punishment, where one of the characters is reading the story of Lazarus to another character. Dostoevsky wanted to ask the question, where do we go as human beings after we fail so tremendously that we stop being human? Is there a resurrection for a human soul beyond the point of resurrection? Who can still love us when society shuns us and the criminal justice system 
slams the door shut at us. And that is the Dostoevsky we see in the late novels. And it's remarkable that this Alexander II, who pardoned him and allowed him to be rehabilitated as a citizen, will eventually ask Dostoevsky to be the spiritual leader to the Tsarevich, to the future Tsar Alexander III. Um, and Dostoevsky um, will give an incredible speech at the unveiling of the, uh, of the Pushkin Monument in Moscow a few months before he died, where he talks not just um, of Pushkin as this conscience of a nation, but of the Russian spirit and the resilience of the Russian soul. At the end of the speech, the audience members shouted, a prophet, prorok in Russian. And so Dostoevsky goes from a political prisoner who is under police surveillance for decades to being um, the conscience of a nation. Um, how does he accomplish this? By telling the truth. Um, he continuously tells the truth about what it means to be a human being, and it's not a simple journey. He does not, he does not simplify. He does, he does not pad our existence with comfort. As a matter of fact, he warns people about this comfortable living. He, he feels that comfort discourages us from reaching our own potential. And uh, my goodness, in the case of Dostoevsky, um, hardship definitely defined him. Um, and so to understand the complexity of Dostoevsky, you have to understand he doesn't offer an easy way out um, from being a human being. We have, to, we have to deal with ourselves the way we are. And Dostoevsky, um, he, 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 he believes in the fact that eventually, of our own free will, we will make the right choices. But it has to be our choice. And Entrusting your readerly soul into the hands of Dostoevsky is a treacherous undertaking because you fight him all the way. And, and the click, the moment of truth happens when you realize, you realize exactly the same thing that he realized in Siberia, that it's me that I'm resisting in this book. Dostoevsky is being so honest that he's showing myself to me. And the reason why I hate him is these are the, the, this is the collection of the worst aspects of me that I do not want to confront. Once that happens, your soul just soars, and, and you trust him because he will take you to light, and, um, and it happens every time. Hmm. Uh, what was, so you've mentioned his, um, uh, the way he treasured the copy of the New Testament mm -hmm. that he'd had, and that he was reading it on his deathbed. What was his relationship to Russian Orthodoxy? Oh my goodness. Um, we, we, need, we need authorities <laughs> to help <laughs> us with this. Uh, he was a, an Orthodox Christian, and, and um, it's fascinating in Russian, or Orthodoxy, the word for Orthodoxy is pravoslavia, which means the glorification of righteousness. So there's no overtone of this Orthodoxy. It's not old belief. It's, it's righteous path towards what it means to be a human being. And he flirted with atheism during his college years, and, and then Siberia happened. Um, and it's fascinating. Uh, you, you really have to have a degree in theology to comment on Brother Skaramazov. I, I'm flailing in so many sections in my commentary because I do not have the, the right kind of background to appreciate the depth of Dostoevsky's faith. Um, but what he does in his books, and the last five, each one of them is based on a miracle of Christ. Um, so if Tolstoy took all of the miraculous aspects of Christianity out, he, he rewrote the Bible for his own pleasure. Um, Riverside Theater did a fabulous play on, on Tolstoy's flirtation with, uh, with the New Testament uh, sans all of the miracles, um, and um, it was um, the gospel. Um, but um, Dostoevsky believes in miracles. He believes that this, this miraculousness of, of faith brings us joy, and joy is of the essence to who we are as human beings. 
So Crime and Punishment is a retelling of the story of Lazarus. The Idiot ponders um, the story of resurrection, and um, also there are uh, elements of the, uh, of the apocalypse, of, of the book of Revelation in The Idiot. Demons is a retelling of the story of the demoniac who is beset by demons, um, and Dostoevsky con considered it, it to be these, these devastating ideas that surface in the 19th century, all of the isms that are imported to Russia from, from Europe. Um, and this demoniac uh, goes to Christ. Christ exercises the demons. He, the, the, the demons go into some swine. The swine off, rush off the cliff, and the, demon, the, the, the demoniac at this point um, sits at the, at the feet of Christ. Um, that is the plot of the, de of the, of the novel Demons. Um, adolescent is complicated. There's a character in it who is a holy wonder. He goes from monastery to monastery, and uh, the teenage... Uh, young man who is the main character of uh, adolescent Arkady Delgaruki feels that there is so much vulgar perversity in everyone who lives around him, and and they are sort of intellectuals who live in Saint Petersburg, and he encounters this holy man, and and his soul reaches out to him, and he says, "You have seemliness in in you." In Russian, it's blagachestia, the the glorification of goodness, and and he says, "You have um, this blagachestia, this this goodliness in you." that I lack in my everyday life. Um, and then Brother Skaramazov is a retelling of the first miracle of Christ, um, the wedding at Cana, the turning of water into wine. And um, what, what do you get out of such an event at a wedding? Joy. Uh, Dostoevsky feels that human joyousness, our ability to, to laugh, our ability to be silly, our ability to poke fun at ourselves, our ability to do lovely things for others. Um, it's this concept of active love that has to be individual. Dostoevsky cannot imagine saving humanity. He feels that saving everything is a fool's errand. But um, being, being responsible, being responsive to one human being's needs is all the world needs to become a better place. And that is his relationship to God. He feels that our relationship to God is a very individual thing, that all of us are guilty for everyone, that um, universal salvation is impossible, but human love and joy on a, on a basic personal level is possible between human beings who are close to each other. And, and that closeness is of the essence of who we are as people. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you. Um, so, so let's move into some of the adaptations that arose from some Dostoevsky works. And I'd like to go to you first, Nathan, and talk a little bit about some of the operas that were drawn from Dostoevsky. Sure, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so there are two that uh, are especially well known now. Um, one by Sergei Prokofiev uh, that was worked on when he was in his 20s, and it was of The Gambler. And a second uh, by Leos, uh, Leos Janacek of uh, Notes from the Dead House. Uh, and what's interesting about these two works as adaptations is they're both told, first of all, they're both autobiographical to an extent. Uh, Anna's already mentioned that, um, but they're also told primarily in first person. So the question of narration is really important that, that we aren't just hearing the story, but we're hearing it from a character within the story. And that creates some kind of interesting problems or challenges if you're going to set that on the stage um, because how do you manage first person narration? Um, there are also other challenges um, that come with adapting really any novel for for the stage, which is to say, a lot of the intellect, a lot of the the interest is what is happening inside characters' heads, and how do you externalize that? Um, 
But with Dostoevsky, where so much of the emphasis is on sort of psychological nuance and spiritual depth, it's not that you can't, in some ways, represent that mm -hmm. through music, um, but it becomes difficult. You can music is. Uh, wonderful for capturing sort of emotional nuance. Mm -hmm. It's harder to say, in this person's head right now, they're thinking about three different th things simultaneously, mm -hmm. and let's sort of parse those out. And so I think what's interesting is, first of all, the 19th century comes and goes, and, and nobody sort of leaps to, to adapt Dostoevsky for the opera stage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but by the time that Prokofiev and uh, Janacek are working, and this is in the 1910s and uh, 1920s on these works, um, opera is changing radically, and the challenges that composers are sort of seeking to take on through opera are really um, interesting. And so the idea of, well, how, you know, how can we tell this story with, uh, you know, th that is told in first-person narration, uh, The Gambler, a story of, of, of addiction and, uh, uh, and, and obsession, how is that something that we can, you know, represent musically and through characters singing um, that will allow us to sort of uh, embody and think about experiences from this novel that, that actually we can't get from the novel itself because we don't actually have the sense of, we don't have the sense of feeling these emotions in a particular given uh, amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so I think of something like the, the sort of climactic gambling house scene where, where our, our central character is, you know, literally gambling his entire life. His entire life is on the line, and his, and his most important relationship is on the line. And Prokofiev has this wonderful, circuitous music for the spinning of the roulette wheel. And, and you just, you know, you hold your breath through that period, which in a way that um, you don't when you're reading it. It's still, there, it's still tense, but, but the idea of, of actually having it like, oh, we are in this space now, we are feeling this. And Prokofiev, the composer, is going to keep that wheel spinning as long as he wants to mm -hmm. in order to kind of build that suspense. Um, Janacek's work with the uh, notes from the Dead House, uh, that novel is more anecdotal, um, and so he can be much more sort of selective in what he, he, ta he talks about. The Gambler has a more sort of traditional narrative arc, um, but uh, that, is, that is less of a concern with the Janacek piece. But what I find really interesting about that one is he, is, he shares Dostoevsky's interest in the act of narrating. And so for the third act, most of the act is one of the prisoners in this uh, Siberian uh, uh, prison camp explaining his relationship with his wife and how that, how he egregiously misjudged her and how even upon realizing his wrong, he committed even greater wrong on top of that and now he's here. And you would think, oh, well, why don't you put that on the stage, like act it out, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, we are just listening to this person recounting this event that is, you know, is def has defining his life, and now he has the rest of his life to sort of live with that and ponder that. Mm -hmm. And so having that sort of space and, and having that, again, that time to sort of just live with that story through, again, Janacek's very careful sort of plotting of it. Um, is fascinating, and it, it allows us a kind of a different sort of way of thinking about um, this experience that that Dostoevsky's created, you know, through the novel, but but is now being kind of transformed on stage. Mm -hmm. Well, you already mentioned that in the early part of the 20th century, opera had taken a turn. Yes. I think we all know that there were lots of things changing around the turn of the <laughs> yes. century, and certainly in classical music too. So we're not probably thinking of a lyrical Puccini opera here, right? This Goodness is a no. very different kind of expression. Yes, yes. These are, these are operas that are um, very much kind of 
withholding, uh, somewhat mischievously, I think, in the case of Prokofiev, um, the, the, the types of uh, qualities that I think draw a lot of opera lovers to the opera, mm -hmm. which is to say ravishing arias and doomed lovers. Um, <laughs> not that all opera is, is, can be reduced to that, but these, these are cases where um, Prokofiev is very much inspired, and I mean, he's in his 20s, and he really wants to, pr he, he really wants to prove something here. Um, he is inspired by earlier examples in music, uh, music and theater of, of Mussorgsky and this idea of, mm -hmm. of kind of trying to build a, a kind of musical theater that is more naturalistic in its delivery mm -hmm. of, of uh, Russian, uh, Russian speech, but it still has all of the sort of commentating and annotating capacity of an orchestra that is sort of saying, and this is, you know, this is what's happening inside of the characters. This is sort of how they're feeling about what they're singing at this mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And so his orchestration is, is fascinating. And, and in fact, uh, Prokofiev made an orchestral suite of just music from the opera <laughs> sans, <laughs> sans singers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so you can enjoy that as well. It's, it's uh, four, four portraits and a denouement from The Gambler. Mm -hmm. um, and Janacek, again, is, a, is a, also a, just a, a masterful orchestrator. But you don't go to these operas for um, the, the melodies that you're going to be whistling at the end. Yeah. That, is not the, uh, yeah. that is not the kind of joy that they, they deliver. <laughs> well, I think, did you also tell me that the libretti were written by uh, the composers? Yes, mm -hmm. that's correct. Yeah, in both of these cases. And so um, uh, Prokofiev uh, wrote the uh, libret libretto being essentially the script, what, what the characters are singing, um, wrote the uh, libretti for all of his operas. And... Um, Janacek started doing that sort of later in his late later in his operatic career, and I think um, that that's not very common. Wagner is probably the sort of most famous example of of a of a composer saying, you know what, I'm 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 kind of <laughs> taking the I'm taking over the whole show here, um, which was kind of Wagner's way of approaching the world. Um, <laughs> but uh, in the case of Prokofiev, I think and and Janacek, I think what's we're seeing here is is a real sense of um, kind of reverence. And 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 creative interest in the the sort of the literary quality of the work that they're they're managing, mm -hmm. and that isn't I, d I I I need to be careful not to overgeneralize, but I think a lot of composers that's not as much the priority. They're happy to share that that responsibility with, mm -hmm. with somebody else and say I'll take care of the music, you take care of the words, and let's work together. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I think with both Janáček and Prokofiev, there was a sense of like, no, you know, this is Dostoevsky, and I have a very clear idea of of how I want this to be set as a work of literature as well as a work of musical theater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. May well, Ben, I add just a oh couple yeah, of sure. things. It's fascinating that both Janacek and Prokofiev dedicated a chunk of their composition to both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Yes. So Prokofiev goes from The Gambler in his 20s to his magnum opus, War and Peace, which he writes during the Great Patriotic War, uh, yes. during, during World War II. And then Janacek, not only does he write the libretto for, uh, from, from the House of the Dead, he translates the novel into Czech from the Russian. So he's a Russian speaker. He takes the novel, he channels it through his own understanding of this book, translates it into Russian, then writes the libretto based on his translation, then writes the music, which is astonishing. Yeah. And of course, Janacek is known for his tremendous contribution to um, the, the quartet genre. It's this Kreutzer, Kreutzer Sonata Quartet, which is an homage to both Beethoven and to, um, to Tolstoy. And uh, Riverside Theater has a fantastic relationship with that musical composition as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, thank you. And and Ben, uh, let's move to you now and talk a little bit about some of the film adaptations that have been made. There have been many. Uh, sure, there have been many, and uh, definitely spanning different eras, different times, um, different even parts of the medium that are being used. So we start in 1909 or 07 with a German adaptation of Crime and Punishment. So the Germans get there first mm -hmm. in, in the shorts. Um, and obviously going up all the way to today, there's still adaptations happening, and even into video games. So it's very far and wide that Dostoevsky <laughs> uh, uh, lives here. Um, as far as adaptations, um, I think there's maybe three or four of his books that weren't adapted. Everything else has been adapted. It's <laughs> massively adapted and universal. I think that's because, as uh, I mentioned, these stories, um, some of them based on uh, the Bible and historical um, works, they've become archetypes like beyond their initial, uh, what they were to begin with. So um, that's obviously a great place for filmmakers to, to play with. Um, mm -hmm. So there's not necessarily, there's definitely a, maybe a bit of a more intense mentality to the, the films you're gonna see from a Dostoevsky adaptation, but there's a lot of room to play with there. So we have, um, as in film scene, if anyone's local here at film scene, um, at the Chauncey, we're doing four films. Uh, and we're starting with the Brothers Karamazov, of course, naturally. Um, and that adaptation from 1958 uh, from director Richard Brooks was in the works for 10 years. Mm. Um, mostly because he wanted to shoot it in Russia. And they said, no, that's not <laughs> happening. There was a lot of pushback and um, eventually it was made on sets, uh, sets that were recycled from older uh, films. And it's the late 50s, so we're kind of looking at the end of the studio era in Hollywood. And that sort of thing would have been maybe more popular a little bit earlier. Um, but of course, it's kind of an impossible book to put to film, especially in a, even though we're over two hours in this runtime, this is more of a let's do an entire mini series kind of a thing if we want to get it. So there, it's, it's a bit, um, you know, pieces here and there, putting it together, um, almost an overview of what the, uh, what the novel is. Um, and I think for me, kind of maligned in a way that it's unfair to it, I think it actually does have a lot going for it, um, uh, starring Ewell Brenner. And uh, or young William Shatner as well. Oh, no kidding. And Lee J. Cobb <laughs> is um, the father in the film and actually was nominated for an Oscar for that, for that <laughs> performance. Um, and we also have Maria Schell, who um, we talked about a, a quote earlier from, uh, from that book, uh, from her character, and that uh, she ties into another film we have. We actually bookend um, this series with two Maria Schell performances. So The Brothers Karamazov will be the first one that we do. And... Um, I think a, a worthy film. Um, it's it's tough to adapt that one. <laughs> um, there's there's so many of them, and I'll just briefly go through all the ones that we're showing. So if anyone wants to come out, that one is on Sunday, the 17th, uh, and on Monday we have La Chinoise, which is uh, from Jean-Luc Godard, who probably most famous for Breathless and being one of the beginning uh, voices in the French New Wave. Uh, this is late 60s, uh, 67, um, and it's an adaptation of Demons. Uh, but his political affiliations are gonna be a little bit different than what Dostoevsky's were. Um, at that time, he was younger and was definitely on board with some of the more radical things that Dostoevsky may have been more critical of in Demons uh, in terms of the characters that are there. 
but the characters are a bit one-to-one in that they're five people all opposed to their government, overthrowing their government in violent ways. <laughs> um, but this is much more loose in terms of what it looks like thematically on the screen. Uh, there's lots of experimentation here, uh, a melding of his essay films, which are starting to happen at that time, and where he would go for the next approximately 10, 15 years, uh, a lot of essay work as opposed to the narrative films, which it's hard to even call narrative because they're very kind of gonzo all over the place. Um, <laughs> when you think of Breathless, when you think of Godard in general, you think of all these jump cuts and things that are almost cartoonish on the screen. Uh, and in this case, in Les Chinois, there's a lot of primary colors, uh, lots of jump cuts, um, speeches, uh, talking to the camera, just all kinds of experimentation that uh, Godard implemented. But it is weirdly one that stays true to a lot of what Demons is, as opposed to some of the other uh, films we have that change plot points in the uh, in what the, the works are, the literary works themselves. Uh, so that's on Monday. And uh, the following day, we have The Double, I know, uh, a favorite of Anna's, uh, which is a great movie that uh, stars Jesse Eisenberg playing two characters, um, uh, playing himself and his uh, doppelganger, who comes in and is a much more squab version of him. <laughs> uh, a much more forceful, kind of not a good guy version of him. Uh, that one directed by Richard Ayawade, who is a uh, comedian, director, writer, kind of a, a jack of all trades. Um, and this was his second film. Came out in 2013 on the festival circuit. Made it to the U.S. by 2014. Uh, and it's the most recent in the series that we're doing of the adaptations, of course, of the double. And it's also very reminiscent of all of his influences, of uh, Ayawade's influences. In particular, um, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, I think is oh, yeah. highly referenced in that film. Um, and a lot of other stylistic elements, even back to Godard, Alphaville is a, a point of reference for that film. Um, and I think a lot of it hangs on Jesse Eisenberg's performance. It's, it's really amazing to see him do the dual role, uh, present in the double, and of course that one, I won't spoil the ending if you haven't seen it, but it is not exactly what we have in the book. Uh, <laughs> and then on uh, the final Sunday, so this is the 17th, we have Brothers Karamazov, and then we have White Knights uh, from Lucino Visconti on the 24th, which is really a beautiful, beautiful movie that, speaking of sets, um, was done all on a set. Uh, counter to what um, Visconti would have done previously uh, in most of his films as a neorealist filmmaker in Italy, uh, pioneering the neorealism movement there. It was kind of the end of the neorealism movement in 1957 uh, with this film, and he set it in Italy. This was one of the St. Petersburg films we were talking about, or, well, not films, but books that was adapted that we were talking about earlier. But in this case, he set it in Livorno, a seaside town in Italy. And... Maria Schell also uh, stars in this one. So we have the Maria Schell bookends uh, and Marcello Mastriani, uh, who worked a lot with Visconti uh, as well. So it's, again, the ending slightly different, <laughs> which is um, kind of what we see par for the course for uh, Dostoevsky, is that you can really adapt and work with his, uh, his literature and change it into what works for you as a, as a filmmaker or what you want to give to your audience. So this is one of the beautiful things about about a uh, piece of of art in one form, 
and then taking it into into another place through another set of eyes. And uh, uh, do you have a favorite any of the ones that are being shown? Oh my goodness, I am in love with White Knights. But White Knights is the most adapted of Dostoevsky works, and it's his early pre-Siberia novella. It's a boy meets girl kind of novella, and to see it done with uh, Maria Schell being the girl and mm -hmm. Marcello Mastroianni and Jean Marais mm -hmm. um, <laughs> courting her at the same time mm -hmm. with Nina Rota's music. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. I love the Jesse Eisenberg double adaptation. I remember I told Ben that when it first came out, I got the DVD and I rushed into my classroom when I was supposed to teach something else and I just said to the students, we are not discussing what we were supposed to discuss today. Right. We are watching this because this is incredible, absolutely mm -hmm. incredible, and that dystopian aspect of what Dostoevsky tries to accomplish with his Grand Inquisitor and Brothers Karamazov was actually brought into this adaptation of The Double, which is, which is amazing. And then who doesn't want to see William Shatner <laughs> being young, <laughs> skinny, and innocent, and that's his Alosha. So he plays the young novice, Alosha, in the Brothers Karamazov, and it, it's a phenomenal role. And I, I jokingly said to some of the guests that he goes from being Alosha in this movie to being Fyodor Karamazov later in life. Mm -hmm. So he goes the whole, the whole Karamazov arc in, in his lifetime. But William Shatner is mesmerizing in this film. He is so sweet, and, um, and it's his first film. So please come to see William Shatner uh -huh. in a Brothers Karamazov adaptation. Well, and, I, and, and everybody probably knows that he's now completing another full circle in his life, having played the uh, Starship Captain, and now tomorrow he is going in into space in the Jeff Bezos <laughs> Ship. Okay, we, 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 we have to celebrate this guy, yeah, okay? Yeah, and, yeah. and maybe he can come back and, and come to film scene on, on Sunday to celebrate go. his show. Sure. <laughs> and then, Nathan, you are doing a talk in this space um, later mm -hmm. this week. Yes. Um, could you tell us about it? Sure, th uh, that's on Thursday at 4 o'clock, and um, we'll just be talking a little bit more about the adaptations that I just mentioned. So um, I'm going to show some clips from uh, The Gambler, Prokofiev's The Gambler and Janicek's uh, from the House of the Dead, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing it and also uh, having a conversation about it with people who are able to come because I think um, it's fun to be able to just react and and get a get a sense of how people are responding to this this music and this really really kind of you know uh, some 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 dark but but not without light um, uh, uh, stories. Right, and I told um, Nathan that I actually went to Met Opera. I went all the way to New York to see. The House of the Dead at the Met, and I always get tickets for the super cheap like family circle, and um, so I had a long walk down when the opera was over, and a family with two teenage boys were walking in front of me, and the boys were complaining nonstop all the way to the ground floor, <laughs> because they hated it. There was nothing there to love and enjoy, and I was just stunned to the core of my foundation. I, I still can't recover from seeing that performance. It was the most incredibly gutting and enlightening thing I've ever seen staged. It, it yeah. is not an opera that you forget. Yeah, well, and, uh, and the thing with opera being, you know, th what the composer brings to it is only like half the picture. What the performers and what the stage uh, production team do is, is just as much, and, and that one in particular is, is stunning in, in how it has been arranged. And um, for me, what's interesting about it is, is I actually feel like Janacek's music is allows more of the light from Dostoevsky and than the stage set does. And I find that just a really interesting kind of play where if you're like listening to it, I feel like the music is kind of in a slightly different uh, different emotional space than the, the very severe, um, you know, these stark gray walls and these, you know, 
prisoners, you know, wearing rags, um, and that that gap is very much deliberate, mm-hmm. and I think it's it creates a really special effect. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ben Delgado, for joining us from Film Scene. Thank you, Nathan Platt, School of Music, and Annie. Of course, you'll be with us in the next segment as well. Please say thank you to our guests. <laughs> Welcome back to World Canvas and our program, Dostoevsky, from Revolutionary Outcast to Man of God. I'm Joan Kerr for UI International Programs, and we're surrounded tonight by the beautiful exhibition on Dostoevsky in the UI Main Library Gallery. We thank Sarah Pinkham, the manager of the gallery, for allowing us to host the program in this space. Uh, We're going to focus on performing Dostoevsky in this final portion of World Canvas. I'm thrilled to be joined by not only our Dostoevsky guide, Anna Barker, but by friends from Iowa City's renowned Riverside Theater. Participants in this discussion are Anna, of course, Anna Barker. Uh, And then uh, next to me here is Adam Knight, producing artistic director of Riverside Theater in Iowa City. Thank you for being here, Adam. Mm -hmm. Next to Adam is Ron Clark, co-founder and director of Riverside Theater in Iowa City. Nice to to see you. Very nice to see you. And uh, next to Ron, we have John William Watkins, an actor who will be performing in Riverside Theater's production of The Grand Inquisitor. Thank you so much for being here, John. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, Annie, of course, at the end. Uh, When you were developing your ideas, uh, Anna, for this Dostoevsky experience, uh, you contacted Adam or, yeah, you reached out to see what could Riverside Theater possibly uh, add. Well, it was a mutual reaching out. I basically hyperventilate about books all the time. I just walk, walk around and spill literary ideas. And um, Adam approached me and he said, you know, there's a play based on the Grand Inquisitor, you know, at which point I was everything that I'm known for. Like I was stomping my feet and screaming out loud and waving my arms and just being in heaven. Um, and then COVID happened. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you have to understand that all the work on this exhibition was done during the lockdown months. And all the books um, were procured miraculously because we couldn't even go to the stacks to pull the books off the shelves. So there are, there are magical human beings who work in this library who made this exhibition possible. And so then everything was just, just sort of put on hold. And I just was um, thinking, okay, I'm, I'm writing this, this massive amount of notes. Um, it will be eventually on the walls. I have no idea if anyone will be able to see it. And then little by little we could go back to the shelves and little by little all of this was coming together and then little by little I realized oh my goodness yes we will be able to screen the films and we will be able to see a live performance of the Grand Inquisitor and I'm eternally grateful to Adam for just keeping this idea alive and um, and making it happen so you you make my dreams come true thank you (laughs) yeah so tell us how this how this all uh, worked on your end Adam Uh, well Thank you. I'm just so pleased to be that Riverside is part of this larger conversation. That's been a, a big uh, part of our mission lately is trying to trying to make sure that Riverside is in communion with these other fantastic arts and, and literary um, organizations here in town, here in this UNESCO City of Literature. Um, the Grand Inquisitor, uh, this adaptation, and I believe this is um, the first production that I know of in the States since the premiere of this production um, that was directed by Peter Brook, um, the renowned theater director Peter Brook, in 2008 uh, that toured around. It's an adaptation by um, Marie-Hélène um, Destion, and, um, who's a frequent collaborator of his. And um, it, uh, it, it just struck me as something that, that, would, uh, that would work well um, 
in this space. Riverside is without a home right now. Um, and so it, uh, the timing was perfect. Um, we were looking for a space. We were seeking out possible churches for this um, place, maybe the library. And then we thought, well, why don't we just do it here? Why don't we do it in this gallery surrounded by these um, artifacts? And it's like the dramaturgical display is, is surrounding us. Mm -hmm. And so the audience before and after the show can come in and, and glean so much of this fascinating uh, exhibit and then um, sit for this, uh, for this experience. Um, Dostoevsky's uh, history in theater, I think, is, is not quite as, um, doesn't go back quite as far, though there, there are a number of celebrated adaptations. There was a, a Broadway production, I think, in the 40s with John Gilgood of Crime and Punishment. Um, Camus has a famous um, adaptation of The Possessed. Um, but more recently, and, and, and one of the first plays I ever saw was an adaptation of the Brothers Karamazov at the John Cocteau Rep <laughs> in New York City in 1994. I was uh, 14 or 15, and I slept through half of it. Um, and so I have no idea if the Grand Inquisitor section was in it, because I definitely <laughs> slept through that. Um, but then I encountered uh, a play by Steve Tesich, who um, wrote the, um, the film What's um, uh, The World According to Garp. And he had a play that premiered at the Goodman Theater called On the Open Road. And inside that play, as part of that play, there is this Grand Inquisitor section, and it's dramatized. And as a young man, I read this and thought, holy cow, what is this? And what is this novel I've never heard of? Mm -hmm. and, the, and this massive question that it raises. And um, you know, as we were thinking about what Riverside's role might be in this larger conversation that, um, that Anna... Um, has spearheaded, uh, I think that the theater holds a special place um, in this world. Music and film and, and literature allow such introspection and, and the, the viewer or the reader um, is allowed to go into their own world. Theater, unique among art forms, is a communal activity. And especially how Ron is staging this, um, the audience not only um, is taking in the Inquisitor and this and this um, dramatic action, but they're also taking in the other audience members taking this in, mm -hmm. and so we are all in this in some way on trial. We are all the masses. We are all the Inquisitor, and we must ask ourselves that que those questions, the great questions that this piece in Dostoevsky asks. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you for starting us off, and I know that when we talk to John and Ron as well. Um, We'll find out what some of these questions are. But let me move to Ron. You are a legend in this in this part of the world. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And you're, you know, you're, you are way too kind. Not at all. Not at all. Everybody here knows that's true. And uh, so it's a real pleasure to have you here. And it's what forty years that you've yeah. had the theater. Yeah. Um, yeah. For thirty-four years, Jody Hovland and I were uh, were at the forefront of that, and now we are way, way happy not to be uh. <laughs> and to have uh, my, d my dear friend Adam Knight yeah. uh, fronting the theater. It's, it's a remarkable mm -hmm. gift. We feel very blessed to have him with us. Mm -hmm. But you can't quite get theater no. out of your blood, so you're no. directing this performance of... Well, yeah. yeah, and it is a great joy because um, I heard the description, and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's an intellectual thing. I don't know if I'm smart enough to even <laughs> think about that one. And then he, he offered it, and I said, well, I only know one guy here in town that I really want to do this with, and that is 
my dear friend John William Watkins. Uh, John and I uh, did a, an adaptation of A Christmas Carol uh, this past year with our, with our dear friend uh, Tara McGovern, fabulous fiddler. And uh, that went well, to say the least. And John and I have a history going way, way back, what, 15 <laughs> years? Something like that? You were in you were in high school then. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're we're old pals, mm -hmm. and so it it and then the literature. I, I got a hold of the adaptation and was just amazed at the depth and the the possibilities for dramatic moments and and confronting audiences with with these extraordinary uh, big big questions about about life and faith and structure and church and and. Uh, and and love, uh, and it was irresistible. Mm -hmm. It's an irresistible piece to an artist, I think, uh, especially an artist of a, a certain age. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we do think about these things, you know. I'm looking into the audience at a few people <laughs> that are of my age, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a captivating piece in that way. Mm -hmm. So what is, uh, this is a, essentially a, a one-man play a one person there's one person speaking essentially throughout right. this play right um what does a director do with that oh, other than find a great actor I, I get out of the way uh <laughs> no you know it's 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 a wonderful challenge because it really does come down to making sure that the actor has everything they need that you can possibly give them you know it's you're you're making a big mistake if you come at this thing with with my con my concept uh, dictates <laughs> that no no you you're, you're I'm I'm a simple storyteller, that's what I am, I'm a storyteller, and it's getting all the all the best parts together. You know, you're starting with the actor, and you go from there. And we have a wonderful costumer, Jenny Kelchin, and and our good friend Chris Rich is doing some lovely stuff to make the space adapt to it and. And Bree Atwood, who's a marvelous young sound designer, uh, you know, I've got an extraordinary team. So that you get the components together, and then we talk a lot about the philo philosophy of this. The other day, we discovered that uh, there was a that there was a, a character out of The Handmaid's Tale that really informs some of the moments mm -hmm. later in this piece. Mm -hmm. um, Aunt, uh, forgive me. What's her name? Aunt Lydia. Aunt Lydia, mm -hmm. yes. Um, and we find uh, so many connections to our contemporary world in this piece as well, the questions about faith and about uh, dogma and what's happening in the fundamentalist uh, Christian community now uh, and how the Catholic Church has evolved from the point of view of this time but this big question of organized religion and faith versus the, 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 the truth of love and compassion and, and the, the big questions that Christ faced uh, when he was in the wilderness. <laughs> Those are timeless. Mm -hmm. Those are timeless. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's about getting those ideas as clear as we can for the audience to consume because it's a lot to take in. You've got this, this man in 15th, 16th century garb questioning, well, I won't, I, I'm not going to spoil the surprise, Jesus Christ, who has miraculously appeared at the time of the Grand Inquisition. And so 
the Catholic Church has a rather remarkable, uh, as represented by the Grand Inquisitor, what they have, what they must do in his presence, uh, because at that time they were burning hundreds and hundreds of heretics in public. <laughs> so what a dilemma! Yeah. <laughs> So, John, uh, you have walked into this role, and how did you approach it? Um, let's see. Uh, well, before I said yes, I think I came down to this gallery, and it was the first day, and Anna was here. and she I, I live here. <laughs> and hammocks in the back here. Yeah, she <laughs> opened up her mouth and talked forever <laughs> about it. And I was like, well, man, this sounds really juicy. <laughs> so then I said yes to it. Um, I, you know, I, uh, lots of, I'm, I'm reading the book. I'm, I'm not finished, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I didn't know this. I had never read the book. Um, and so, you know, I guess it was two months ago, right? When, mm -hmm. when this all began, for me anyway. Um, so I've read the play many, many times, um, and then just memorizing the thing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm. spent hours with it. Um, but also, you know, a lot of uh, historical uh, facts that I didn't know. So I've, you know, I've filled my head with a lot of uh, the history of, of Christianity mm -hmm. since the time of Jesus to now. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I guess I started with the Spanish Inquisition, mm -hmm. um, but then I started reading the book, and the book is really informative uh, for 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 playing this. I mm. feel, you know, it's it's. I feel like the um, the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus Christ in this play mirror um, Yvonne and Alyosha, right? And uh, and there's and and even um, Yvonne uh, Alyosha in in that chapter says this man would never happen. Would, this man could never exist. And, and then Yvonne gives this beautiful <laughs> psychological backstory to possible uh, backstory to this character, which is really inspiring for me to find the humanity in this, uh, what could you know, be a, a monster of a man. Yeah. Um, and to find his... Uh, the impetus for everything that he does mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to find the tearing in this piece, the obstacle for him in this piece, which I think is, uh, you know, he started as this follower of Christ or, you know, when we are young, we're fed this idea of God, um, which, which can hold a place in your heart. And, um, but as we grow, you know, <laughs> we start piling things on and we start um well and this man is is he's he lives within this huge corporation mm -hmm. right and so he and he has this level of power so how that that seed of love um and that was blossoming started to get uh, twisted mm -hmm. so it's really a juicy piece to play but also you know just when we started meeting and and reading it just reading it and just the debate the argument of it is so exciting that we don't want to mess it up with mm -hmm. with too much else yeah. right so yeah. find what that means um and we're still figuring that mm -hmm. out but mm -hmm. um but i think we're we're on our way 
<laughs> to oh, yeah. somewhere. We're well on our way. <laughs> John, John I, I, I'm not blowing smoke. John's amazing in this show. He's. Uh, I hope. I hope everyone in this room c can come and and folks listening uh, uh, out there in the airwaves. Uh, it's an extraordinary performance, uh, and I'm 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 proud to to be directing it. <laughs> but John, it must be a, a special challenge when you are the one voice giving all parts of the argument. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, but it really is. I mean, it's it, like today we had today something. I mean, I I lived with it all day yesterday because I had a horrible rehearsal in here <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> and so I just lived with it yesterday. Mm -hmm. And um, and then today we came in and and, and rehearsed it. But it really is. Uh, it is. I I think Adam said it's it's a roller coaster. You know, mm -hmm. from beginning to end, it is just just a, a wild ride um, to listen to, but then to perform it, it's so, um, it's very exciting, <laughs> you know, I, the challenge is very exciting um, to to have all those words and to, to make the points and to <laughs> make sure that I'm making the points and that I'm not um, yeah. getting in the way of it mm -hmm. with any mm -hmm. sort of schmacting, you know, <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. But it is, it, it's, it's uh, you know, now that the words are almost all there in my head, <laughs> you know, we get to play with it and I get to, you know, find a level of presence in there. Um, but also, you know, the thought of like playing it for in this space with audience on either side and to be, I mean, it's really exciting because I haven't done that for a while now mm -hmm. because of the pandemic but sure. um but this piece in particular uh when we were like i said when we were reading it and the people who were listening around on ron's back porch you know having that's where we're having doing a, a yeah. lot of our rehearsals <laughs> that's, in that's where we're <laughs> screen right. porch it's very safe <laughs> you know i'm just excited to play it for mm -hmm. an audience and to and to be in the midst of everyone feeling it together and everyone mm -hmm. hearing these this this argument mm -hmm. that this man <laughs> geniusly wrote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you, John. Um, well, so, Annie, uh, let's bring it back to you. What do you see in that chapter of Brothers Karamazov in this play, uh, The Grand Inquisitor? I absolutely love to give tours in this place, and all of a sudden somebody walks in and starts looking at the light, and I'm like, ah! the lighting engineer from Riverside Theater, or someone walks in during a tour and then starts looking at the walls, and I'm like, that's the set designer. So I, I've been thrilled to be a part of the creative process, but you guys rehearse like in the morning. Don't you know that I sleep till noon? <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing I have with, uh, in, in common with Dostoevsky. We both slept till noon. Um, <laughs> the Grand Inquisitor is one chapter. It's 19 pages out of an 800-page novel. It's one chapter out of Brothers Karamazov. So I always tell my students, if we construct the pyramid, and Brothers Karamazov is the summit of Dostoevsky's creation, it's his final novel, he died a few months after completing this novel, the Grand Inquisitor is at the top of the pyramid. It's the summit of the summit. 
it, it is so important in Dostoevsky's work that um, it's often published separately as a separate edition. We actually have two spectacular separate edition of The Grand Inquisitor, one um, illustrated by Fritz Eichenberg, who is our honored illustrator for all of the late books of Dostoevsky. Um, and often, um, readers misread it. I've talked to so many students who read just a separate edition of The Grand Inquisitor, and they assume that Dostoevsky is on the side of the Inquisitor. I've argued with these students um, to the point where once I had to bring my boxing gloves to class <laughs> and lay them down at the corner of my desk and I told the students that the next argument like that, we just go into the corridor and we have a few rounds because it, this is unbearable. They can't argue Dostoevsky's words against Dostoevsky. So putting this chapter into the, con uh, in the, into the context of Brothers Karamazov is absolutely essential. And as John pointed out, it's an argument between two brothers. Um, Ivan Karamazov is an atheist and he's a rationalist. Alyosha Karamazov, the William Shatner character um, from the film that is screening at film scene in, um, uh, on Sunday, is a novice in a monastery. He's a saintly young man. He's 19, 20, um, and he has love in his heart for absolutely everything. And it's hard to love people because as the elder in Brothers Karamazov, Zasima says, because people are hard to love. They blow their noses and they slurp their soup. We as individuals are hard to love, but we have no other options in life. We have to love people the way they are. And the Grand Inquisitor gives us the opposite side of the issue. Can we find fault with people? And the greatest fault that the Grand Inquisitor sees in people is we have free will. And what's even worse, we misuse it. And that is the argument of the Grand Inquisitor. So Ivan basically would like to bombard little brother, as older brothers tend to do, with some truths that he feels will knock Alyosha off his path of righteousness. And um, the chapter before the Grand Inquisitor chapter is called Rebellion, and it talks about the injustice done to innocence in this world, cruelty towards children. It's an unbearable chapter. I can't read it. I have a hard time teaching it. But that hasn't done the trick. Alyosha still stands, and Alyosha's faith, and Alyosha's love of people, and love of everything about people stands firm. And so Ivan thinks, well, I'll have a little approach, different approach. I'm going to bombard you with a little literary composition that I wrote. It's a little poem from my past, and let me just poke you with it. And the tale is of the Grand Inquisitor who confronts Christ. And that is the entire chapter, 19 pages of it, and Alosha is on the receiving end of hell. And what happens at the end of the poem that Ivan bombards Alosha with, and what happens in the relationship between the two brothers, is of the essence where Dostoevsky stands. So for you to experience Dostoevsky's answer, you have to watch the play and then come to a talk back where I'm going to tell you what happens between the two brothers <laughs> after <laughs> Ivan is done with his little narrative that is supposed to undo Alyosha. It is, uh, I have an entire panel dedicated to just the Grand Inquisitor uh, right there next to the final portrait of Dostoevsky, and you talked about The Handmaid's Tale. So much dystopian literature derives from this. In my commentary on 100 uh, Days of Brothers Karamazov, I mentioned several uh, films that came out fairly recently, such as, well, of course, The Matrix. I mean, The Matrix is the greatest homage to this battle uh, between the powers that can and free will that must. Um, but also uh, Watchmen, um, Handmaid's Tale was just adapted into uh, a TV series. Um, the Lego movie, 
um, is absolutely about that. Those of you who young, ha have young kids, there, there are totalitarian forces at play and uh, a little human being that must uh, because the little human being has free will. Um, and uh, fascinating, we just went to see the latest Bond film. The villain in the film literally quotes the Grand Inquisitor for a bit. So it's incredible once you wrap your mind around this chapter, which is seemingly impossible to understand, but once you grasp it, you all of a sudden walk out into the world um, realizing that you are in a constant interplay in, in, this, in this battle between your freedom and a world that would not accept it. And, um, and you must triumph. I'm done. <laughs> One, one quick fun fact is that when Laura Bush was asked what her favorite piece of literature is, she said the Grand Inquisitor. No kidding. Uh, so we can all put, make our Freudian analysis of whatever that <laughs> means. But a dramatist, Tony Kushner, wrote a play called um, Only We Who Guard the Mystery Shall Be Unhappy that premiered in 2004 in which Laura Bush was reading the Grand Inquisitor as a bedtime story to dead Iraqi children. Oh, oh my. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, can, I, can I just give a shout out on our performance yeah, dates? Yeah, please. Leave there October 28th. October 21st through the yeah, 31st. Yes. Yeah, that's what he <laughs> said. Uh, the production is free, but reservations are highly recommended, wonderful. and reservations can be made at riversidetheater.org. That is wonderful. Gosh. Well, uh, any concluding remarks? Uh, Annie, anything else you want to say? There are so many things happening. Uh, where could someone uh, find a compilation of all the Dostoevsky-related events? Well, I've been spilling my brain, um, the, the daily uh, dribble, <laughs> um, since August 1st. So 100 Days of Brothers Karamazov is on Facebook, and it's an open account. Even if you don't have a Facebook account, you can um, just say Facebook on a barker, 100 Days of Brothers Karamazov, and read absolutely everything that I've been saying for the past 52 days, and I'm going to keep going till December 10. The gallery website is phenomenal. Sarah Pinkham is in charge of the gallery website, and she keeps posting all of the additional um, information, all of the events that surround this exhibition. It's the most accurate and up-to-date um, source of information, and it's the University of Iowa Gallery um, and uh, University of Iowa Main Library Gallery, and you can uh, you can find lots and lots of information there. Virtual tours. Um, she has been writing blog posts about the exhibition. We filmed a few snippets of me talking about some of the items on display. Um, I will be giving tours of this exhibition for the rest of October, every Thursday at three and every Saturday at two. So please come. Um, viewers of this exhibition have told me that it takes about two hours to walk through the entire thing, reading everything. And my tour is about an hour, an hour and a half. And I don't talk about the items, the, 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 the writing that is on the panels. I, I tell anecdotes and do additional stories. And then, of course, um, please go to the Riverside um, Theater website and reserve um, a space. I already did that for my students. All of my students are coming to see this play. It's free, but you have to reserve a seat. And then uh, Film Scene and their incredible Dostoevsky adapted series. Uh, please don't miss it. It's going to be phenomenal. And uh, Ben and I are going to do a little uh, pre-game talk. And then we are going to, for audience members who are still with it, we are going to stay to the glorious conclusion and we'll answer uh, questions from the audience. And we'll be doing talkbacks for, uh, for this as well. Wonderful. Well. Brilliant evening here. I want to say thank you so much to Adam Knight, to Ron Clark, and to John William Watkins, and of course to Anna Barker. This has been a beautiful evening, and thank you all for coming. Um, uh, the next World Canvas is on November 15th.
Thank you all for coming tonight. We'll see you next time.